before we dive into the Bible, I just wanted to remind you of a couple things we talked about last week. I mentioned that this year is the year of welcome, that we want to become experts at being a welcoming church. And I suggested two things. Do you remember what they are? One of them was about, well, one of them was postcards. I heard that one. I've got a trigger in here in my hand for you on that one. The, the first one I mentioned was the idea of being intentional. When you come to church, pray and say, God, who do you want me to connect with today? And maybe there's some new person that you haven't met before. Um, introduce yourself. Spend some time in the lobby chatting with them after church. Um, exchange numbers. Maybe make a time to, to get together later. Make a connection. So ask, pray to, pray to God for some intentionality and then follow through with a little bit of connection. So that's one thing, being a welcoming church. The other thing I suggest is that we have an, um, an intentionality about paying attention to those people who aren't around that we've normally seen and, and just aren't here um, this week or the last two or three weeks. So I've, uh, I've, I've brought a box. It's like a little mailbox and it's sitting on the desk in the entryway. And in the side, it has five different varieties of cards. This one says, praying for you. Um, doesn't have to have any, any big message on the back, but you might notice that, that uh, somebody was mentioned uh, maybe having some surgery or procedure or something or being sick or something like that. And so you just might say, um, dear Anna, um, heard you were sick, praying that, that God will, will bring you back to health soon. And then just jot your name down. And then in the, in the two line, put Anna Harris. And you might not know her address. I don't have a directory in there yet. Um, you might not know her address. Well, that's fine. Just put Anna Harris there and drop it in the mailbox. And, and somebody will make sure, probably me at first anyway, <laughs> but somebody will make sure it gets the right address and it gets in the mail early this coming week. So we're wanting to make it super easy for you to engage and express care and kindness. There's a, this one, it says, uh, miss seeing you. <laughs> There's a few cute ones. I think they're fun. So um, please take a moment, think about that, and take a moment as you leave. If you notice somebody missing, and you know it's not because they were snowed in, um, by the way, um, the Wagners and um, uh, Dave and Kathy Hatley and um, apparently Randy and Esther, lots of other people are snowed in. Joe and, and Lisa, they just can't be here because of the snow, and we totally understand that. So if you know they're, they're here because, or not here because they're sick or they haven't been here for a few weeks... Uh, make an, an, a note and uh, get it to them. Next Sabbath, we have the um, 90th anniversary. I fully intended to have some invitations that you could hand out. I had them printed even. I went to the printer at the time that they said that they were ready and at a time that they were open and they were not open. So I don't have them for you today. Uh, but if, uh, if you drop by the information desk on the way out, there are these little cards. And if you know somebody that you'd like to invite, just... Make uh, an intentional visit or a moment in a conversation with them to say, hey, I wanted to invite you. This coming weekend on Saturday, we have a special event at my church. We're celebrating 90 years. We'd love to have you come and celebrate with us. Here's the information, or here's, here's some information about the church. And just, this card, it just says you're invited, and on the back, it's got some information about our church. The one thing it doesn't have, and this is entirely my fault, is the address. <laughs> so just, just tell them where to find the church. Okay, so um, my announcements are done. Um, I, I was taught when I was uh, working in Walla Walla that if you want everybody to hear your announcements, 
then you have to preach them because some people aren't there by the time the announcements are being made. So I apologize um, for, for having announcements during the sermon time. Let's open our Bibles. We were just in Daniel chapter 12. Let's go back there for a moment. And then once we're done with a verse or so in Daniel, we're going to jump forward to Revelation chapter 14. So keep that in the back of your mind. Daniel is this apocalyptic book. It has all kinds of prophecies that uh, begin in the time of Daniel and fulfill throughout history and end in what Daniel says in Daniel 12.4. It says, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. That, that phrase has lots of significance, the time of the end. And we explored the rise and fall of nations, and we saw what, was, what Daniel was describing from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome to the breakup of Rome to the rise of this religio-political power from among Western um, Europe to, well, we, we even noted that that kind of began in 538 when Justinian handed over the keys, so to speak, of the, the governments of Western Europe to the, the bishop of Rome. And before long, that became the Pope of Rome. And, uh, and that group of people, that nation of uh, religious nation, ended up persecuting anybody that disagreed with them. And unfortunately, many of the beliefs that they had and the practices that they, that they did for worship uh, ended up being blasphemous to God. And so anybody who disagreed with that blasphemy was put on notice. Uh, some tortured, persecuted, some killed. In fact, millions were killed as a result of this. And the Bible says that this, this power would reign and persecute God's people for 1,260 years. And 538, 1,260 years later, is 1798. And that is not coincidentally when the Roman Catholic Church was removed from the political um, uh, power in, in the Western world. Napoleon systematically took the church and all of its um, sub, uh, representatives in the various governments, um, it, it, it took them out of the various governments so that the governments could act without the religious influence. And then in 1798, his general went down to Italy and into Rome and he took the Pope and put him in prison. And, and the reign of terror of this political religious power ended in 1798. And, and from prophecy, from Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13, we know that this fulfills the, the, the big prophecies that happened before the time of the end. And then there's that prophecy we, we read about in Daniel chapter 8. The longest prophecy in the Bible, 2,300 years. And it begins when the, um, the, the command or the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem happened in 457 BC. 2,300 years from then is 1844. And in 1844, we see the, the prophecy of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary took place. And so it's in this time, the, the very end of all the big time prophecies in the Bible, that we find the time of the end. Yeah, I know, it seems like a long time ago. It's been 224 years since 1798, 178 years since 1844. And, and we can look back and say, oh my goodness, the time of the end is dragging on a long time. 
But just think about it. It's been 2,600 years since Daniel was writing. 2,600 years in comparison to 178 isn't the, 178 is a really small amount of time. It seems big to us, but it's not big in the world history. So in this time of the end, as Jesus' return is really soon, there's something the Bible describes happening, something that happens right in this, the, the beginning and all the way through this time of the end period. And it, you can find it in Revelation chapter 14. And, uh, and we're going to be looking in verses 6 and 7 just to start out with. There are these three angels' messages. You already know this, but I'm just going to say it for, to make sure. When the Bible describes this angel, it's not necessarily talking about a literal angel. In fact, because biblical prophecy is very symbolic, when you read angel, you need to understand what that word means. The Greek word for angel is just messenger. So messenger of the Lord is the same as angel of the Lord. I'm just curious, can you and I be messengers of the Lord Yeah, anybody who takes the word of God and gives that to somebody else is a messenger of the Lord. So when somebody says, oh, you're such an angel, just thank them, because you are, in a way. Um, But so this message, it begins with an angel. It says, I apologize, I'm behind on my slides. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Notice the, the emphasis here. It's the everlasting gospel. And who is this gospel to be preached to? Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of waters. And it was just as God's people are discovering Daniel 7 and the the judgment scenes there and Daniel 8's prediction of the cleansing of the the heavenly sanctuary that um, this emphasis begins to, to rise in them. The realization they need to tell people the judgment is here. And so they begin to, to, to tell the world in the early 1800s, judgment has come and they're excited about it. And you know, something about this judgment has come message includes who to worship, worship him who made. And so they start to talk about something very significant that the one who made is remembered and worshiped in keeping holy his Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. In fact, this message was so loud and so long throughout all the world that prior to this message, most Christians believed that they kept a Sunday Sabbath. But after this message started to be preached, the entirety of Christianity abandoned that idea. You don't hear it anymore that Sunday is Sabbath. Very well, you can, but it's pretty rare. In fact, most churches, in order to get away from the idea entirely, have suggested that the the law is done away with. We don't need to keep any Sabbath because the law is done away with. And so they celebrate Sunday, uh, on Sunday for a variety of reasons, none of them really biblical. So the, the impact of this message is significant, and it changed, it changed the fabric of the Christian world. And then you get to the second message, Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon, that's a loaded name, isn't it? It's tied to the Tower of Babel, 
a group of people that made up their own system of worship, defying God, thinking God couldn't be trusted, and uh, substituted their own worship in its place. They ignored God's rainbow promise, uh, thinking that God wouldn't keep his promise. And, And that began a long series of people not understanding the character of God. And Babylon is also tied to the magicians and the astrologers and the soothsayers that uh, were around in Babylon in Daniel's day. And, and these were the people that encouraged the king to do things like, hey, why don't you build that tower that you saw in your dream, that image, and make people worship it? And you know what? If they don't worship it, let's kill them. Or Daniel, hey, let's make sure that people only pray to you, to you Darius, um, and, and so then when Daniel begins to pray, if, you, if he doesn't pray to you, then let's throw him in the lion's den. And, and thus begins a pattern of forced worship and the death decree for disobedience, something that we see taking place at the end of time. The Bible predicts that this kind of thing would happen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Babylon is the every man-made system and doctrine of men that uh, obscures the character of God and leads people away from him. And I think when we, when we read this message, we have to recognize what's at stake. When it says, judgment has come, worship God who made, the alternative and the stakes are really high. Because we're, we're dealing with life and death stuff in this message. And you have two options. The first option is to worship God, and the result is eternity with Jesus. The, alt- the other option is to follow Babylon. And the result, well, you'll have to read that in verses 9 through 10. It's not transitioning. I click it, but it doesn't do anything. Okay, there you go. <laughs> verses 9 through 10. He himself, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink. I'm not, I'm, I'm not finding this to work. If you wouldn't mind, Silas, just following along with me. Verse 10, Revelation 14, verse 10. Um, He himself also shall drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. There's so much stuff in here that people, Christians, like to argue about. What about the mark of the beast? And who is the beast? What about the image? And um, is this eternal burning hell? And so many things in here that we're just not going to get a chance to talk about today. But look at what's at stake. You've got worshiping the lamb and eternity versus following the beast and its image. This Babylon system of false worship. And the result is, is death. The beast here refers to an awful religio-political power that Revelation 13 describes and says that it will demand worship or death. And then the beast in, the, the, the beast in Revelation 13 sets up a false system of worship. And there's this other image to the beast that's set up, this uh, power 
that comes to support this false system of worship. And all these things are really interesting and intricate and uh, good to study out. But, but what we want to find out here is just that there's a line drawn in the sand. At the, in this time of the end, there's a line drawn in the sand where you have two groups of people, those that follow the Lamb and those who don't. Notice in, in verses 10 and 11, those worshipers of the beast and its image are brought to a final justice an execution that happens in the presence of the Lamb. It says Jesus is there and the angels are there and all this happens in the presence of the Lamb. And I think we are all going to stand before Jesus Christ. And we just have really two options. One is we try to avoid him and the other is we follow closely after him. Go back to verses 1 of Revelation 14. Verses 1 and following. And it describes this group of people who... Well, it says that they follow the lamb. I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his father's name on his, and who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Look at these characteristics. Uh, We could, again, go all day about things like the 144,000. Is it literal or symbolic? Let me just say this. This is a group of people that are positioned in prophecy right at the time of the end and just before judgment happens, the the final judgment. And so we'll just say these are God's messengers, and they're the ones that take the three angels' messages to the world. And what are they like? Are they perfect, having never, ever sinned? In fact, it says, no, they're redeemed from among men. It says they stand with the lamb. It says that they have Jesus' name and and the Father's name in their forehead, indicating God's character and his will is imprinted in their mind. Um, They sing a song of salvation. They sing that song that no one else can sing because they uniquely, not the angels, not anybody else in the universe, but they have been redeemed by Jesus. And so they sing this song of salvation. They worship the creator. They're not defiled with spiritual idolatry following after man-made religions. And they speak the truth about God's character and about his plans. And lastly, and most importantly, I think, is that they follow the Lamb of God. That, that last one is the key to all of the others. They follow Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me the vine uh, abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me following the lamb abiding with jesus these concepts are really the same thing and this group of people described in revelation 14 that take these three angels messages to the world are abiding with jesus when jesus comes again these people are going to be ready and waiting for him. They're going to be ready and waiting because they've got their, their mind and their heart fixed on Jesus. Their attention is focused on Jesus. 
And that's a dramatic contrast with the religion of Babylon, this alternative system, these man-made ideas. Because Babylon has intentionally focused our attention on something else. And they talk about being drunk with the wine. What happens when you're drunk? What happens to your mind? Can you think clearly? Do you see clearly? No, things that are small become big, and things that are big are, become insignificant. You, you stop uh, processing things correctly. And that's what happens with spiritual, the spiritual wine of Babylon as well. We stop seeing clearly, and we don't understand who God is. We, we fail to recognize the beauty of his character or his plans. When, when Jesus comes a second time, there are going to be these two groups of people. One who stands there and says, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. And the other that they, they look up for a brief moment and scream with fear. How many of you have seen a lamb and run away screaming because you're afraid? Perry, are lambs scary? No. Why would you be afraid of the lamb? It doesn't make logical sense. But that's kind of what happens when you have these false doctrines that the, this Babylon system tries to promote. You get afraid of the God who loves you so much. And instead of accepting his redeeming power, you run in fear. And you say to the rocks, please fall on me. Let me die rather than facing this lamb. One group follows the lamb wherever he goes, eagerly anticipating his return. The other group trembles in fear and runs away wishing for death rather than meeting Jesus. Which group would you rather be in? Which group would you like to be in? As we find ourselves in this time of the end period, however long it may last, there's nothing more important than following the Lamb. And so I just want to sit on this idea for a minute. What does it mean to follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Many believe that it's correct doctrine. If we are um, cemented into truth, and that's um, the state of the dead, the Sabbath, the investigative judgment, the, I mean, you list whatever doctrines you want in that mix. But if we're cemented in our understanding and we can prove them from the Bible, um, we can uh, somehow withstand the problems that will come at the end of time. And that's true. I mean, how can you know God unless you study him and, and, and see him for the beauty that he, he expresses in the Bible? How can you um, follow someone that you don't know? Clearly, doctrine is important, but there's, there's something more because we can have correct doctrine and not even know the Lamb. Jesus says there's going to be people at the end of time that come essentially knocking on the door. He talks about the wedding feast and the, the, the people that are waiting for him, the, the, the maidens, 10 uh, maidens, five are wise, five are foolish, five had, have oil, five don't. And, and the five that don't end up coming late because they went looking for oil and they knock on the door and the bridegroom, that would be Jesus, says, I, I don't know you. Who are you? And then there's the, the parable of the, the, the two the goats and the sheep, uh, they come to Jesus and the one he puts on his right hand and, and says, enter into my glory. And the other he puts on his left and he says, he says, um, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Knowing right doctrine isn't the answer. There's more to the story. Um, there's a passage that I want to read you from a, a book called Steps to Christ. And 
I've got some of these out in the lobby. If you don't have one handy, I'd really encourage you to read chapter 11. It's called The Power of Prayer. And if you don't have one handy, grab one from the back. Either this book, Steps to Christ, it's also called Happiness for Life. You can grab either one of those in the back entry table on your way out. Um, Through nature and revelation, through his providence, and by the influence of his spirit, God speaks to us. But these are not enough. We need also to pour out our hearts to him. In order to have spiritual life and energy, we must have actual intercourse with our heavenly father. Our minds, see if we can get this going. Our minds may be drawn out toward him. We may meditate upon his works, his mercies, his blessings, but this is not in the fullest sense communing with him. In order to commune with God, we must have something to say to him concerning our actual life. Our prayer our prayer is not is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend, not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive him. Prayer does not bring God down to us. It brings us up to him. So, yeah, God speaks to us through revelation. He gives us information about him and about his plans in his word, but he invites us He invites us to something deeper than just an intellectual knowledge of him. He invites us to a conversation, a two-way conversation. Have you ever been in one of those conversations where one person just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks? If that's me, please tell me. (laughs) It's not very fun, is it? There's a two-way communication that has to go on for a relationship to exist. You listen and you speak. You talk about your desires and your plans and your wishes, um, your frustrations, right? And you hear and you listen and you, you make sure you understand. And when that happens, there's something that follows good conversation. It's intimacy. To know and be known is one of the deepest desires of humanity. And in, especially in a marriage environment or in a parent with a child, like the, the desire is to be connected through Mainly communication. Many of you have come to prayer the last few nights. I'm sorry, Ingrid. I was in charge of last night. And this, I moved snow all day. I was beat. And somehow, 6 o'clock came and went. And by the time 6.30 came along and I realized what I had done, <laughs> well, it was too late to come anyway. So <clears throat> I'm so sorry. Good. Well, for those of you who came to that prayer, thank you. That's a really important thing for us to come together and to pray. God wants us to engage with him in prayer. He wants us to have a two-way conversation with him, both individually and as a community. He wants us, he wants us to know him. And, and knowing somebody requires that interaction. But what if you feel like, you know, I've prayed and I just don't get any response from God. There's no two-way in this. Uh, you know, he just, it's just stuff in the Bible that I'm not really sure I understand. And then I pray and I tell him stuff and nothing happens. Now, uh, sometimes God is quiet. And that's intentional. Um, he's answering our prayers, but maybe not yet. Sometimes he's doing battle for us in the background. And we just don't know it yet. Like Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. But there are conditions to answered prayer. I'd like to give you three. The, the first is that we need to feel our need for him. Just think about this for a moment. God loves you. If God loves you, does he know your needs already? Yeah. 
if we're talking about the spouse, God would be the attentive spouse. He's not the uninterested, huh? What'd you say? Like looking at his phone (laughs) or whatever um, while you're talking to him. That's not the kind of spouse he is. God is the attentive spouse who actually is engaged in looking and paying attention to your needs and, and he's anticipating them before you even call, right? He's got, he's got a plan. But then you ever have that time as uh, if you're married or if you've seen your parents interacting, you ever seen that situation where um, the one spouse might be attentive, but the other one just could care less. And, uh, and the attentive spouse is maybe even interested in helping, but the other spouse is, is uh, just, hey, I've, I've got life on my own. I'm, I don't need your help. Please, please don't bother me, right? I've got, I've got stuff to do. Um, and, and they're just kind of doing things on their own. Can the attentive spouse be of any help to the one who is uninterested in that help? No, it doesn't work that way. You have to have a need. You have to recognize, I need your involvement in my life. And if you don't recognize that, then you end up doing life separately. So when we come to God, we shouldn't come like the Pharisees. Thank you, God, that I'm not like all those other people. I'm, I'm good. You know, I appreciate, appreciate that, that uh, we've got this little relationship here where you let me do my thing and I'm, you know, all righteous all by myself. That's not going to help you. And that's not going to enable God to bless you. We have to come and recognize, first of all, that I have a need. And the quicker we recognize our need, the better. And then when we come to God, he says, I will provide. In fact, there's even a name for God. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. Does God provide for you? If he hasn't been, maybe you've been trying to do things without his help. And you haven't been recognizing your need. Well, that's the first condition. The second condition is that we need to pray with a contrite heart, not clinging to known sin in a marriage relationship, which God likens to his relationship, right? The marriage is intended to be an example of God, God's relationship in heaven. So in a marriage relationship, if one partner is hiding things, there's sin in the relationship and they're preventing the other person from looking in. The other person might not even know that there's sin, but there's something that's harming the relationship in secret. They're hiding it. They don't want to expose themselves to their spouse. Does that relationship thrive? It can't. Intimacy requires nakedness. I know I said that in church. (laughs) Intimacy requires nakedness. You cannot hide yourself and be intimate with God. And we like to do that. We cover up ourselves with our fancy clothes, our pretend righteousness. And God says, come on, it's just filthy rags. Won't you just take it off so I can clothe you with something beautiful? Won't you just confess your sin and let me forgive and cleanse you? In order for us to have a connection with God, with the intimacy of that conversation that he wants us to have, we have to tell him our sins and forsake them, confess them and say, God, I don't want that in my life anymore. And then thirdly, we need to believe. The Bible says that we need to believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently please him. Faith is a condition to answered prayer. The Bible tells us that Abraham grew strong in his faith. This is from Romans 4, 20 and 21. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised he would do. 
Are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised? When we spend time in his word and we see the stories of his fulfilled promises, we can, we can recognize the promises that are for us and say, God will do what he said he would do in my life. I believe him, and so I'm going to come to him, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to submit my needs to him, and I know he'll answer them. Even if it's not the way I want or the timing I want, I know he will answer. We must believe. Our heavenly Father wishes to, wishes, sorry, waits to bestow upon us the fullness of his blessing. It is our privilege to drink largely at the fountain of boundless love. What a wonder it is that we pray so little. Without unceasing prayer and diligent watching, we are in danger of growing careless and of deviating from the right path. The adversary seeks continually to obstruct the way to the mercy seat that we may not by earnest supplication and faith obtain grace and power to resist temptation. We're in a spiritual battle. This is the time of the end, the time when everything heats up and Satan and Jesus go head to head. Because Jesus is about to bring this all to an end. He's about to fulfill all his promises of salvation and all the promises to end evil and sin in the universe. This is an exciting time, but if we're in a battle, a spiritual battle that's beyond our capability, does it make sense for us to put up our dukes and get all our guns and try to figure out some way to fight Satan? No, that doesn't make any sense. The only, the only thing that makes sense is for us to go to Jesus and say, I need your help. I need thee every hour I need thee. In this little passage, Ellen White describes this idea of watching. I see this over and over in the Bible, prayer and watching connected. If you were to follow somebody, is it possible to follow them without watching them? Think of uh, back when you played follow the leader. Any kids here play follow the leader recently? Yeah, a few. Okay, good. So the idea is, if Emma's leading, then and I'm following, and Emma jumps over a log... My goal is as I'm running, I jump over the same log and land hopefully in the same spot she did, right? Is that how it works, Emma? Okay. So, and then if, um, if Bear was leading um, and he takes a left and then a left and then another left, like my goal is to run up until the very moment that he took a left and then I do the same thing, right? Follow the leader requires watching. It requires a focus on the person who's leading, and following the lamb wherever he goes requires us watching as well. And so the Bible connects these two ideas, watching and prayer. In Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation, Jesus says to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then in Colossians 4, 2, Paul ties watching and prayer together when he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. If we want to follow the Lamb, it's not just about reading the Bible. That's essential. We got to do that. We have to know doctrine. We have to know about God. But it's also about prayer, spending time with Him. Because it's in that, in that two-way conversation that He's able to apply God's Word to our hearts and, and give us grace to withstand temptation and to overcome the power of Satan. But there's also a good, another aspect of watching. Whenever you watch somebody, you're following them closely. In a biblical sense, you also need to be calling back to the people behind you. Hey, come, come over here. 
Jesus is over here so that they can follow too. In Revelation 14, verses 14 and 15, we see something happening. Right after the three angels' messages is, are given, this reaping happens. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, um, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. There's a, there's a harvest, a result that happens. Um, and, and this is like the last, the last harvest, the last thing that, that happens before Jesus comes. And I think this is a result of those 144,000 at the beginning of this chapter. In fact, in, um, in this harvest time, which the, Jesus connects with the second coming in John chapter 5, he says, the hour is coming when those who are in the tomb will rise. The first resurrection would be the resurrection of life. The second uh, um, would be the resurrection of condemnation, of judgment. Um, but, but Revelation 7 points to these... Um, Let's see if, if I've got it here. I think I do. Revelation 7 points to this 144,000 and it describes them. And then after it describes them, it points to this thing that happens after. It says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And, and isn't that similar to Revelation 14 and who the three angels' messages were given to? All the nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. So it says, I saw this great multitude that no one could number of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, not their self-righteous robes, but with Jesus' robes, with palm branches in their hands. These are people that have been saved, right? And then it says, and they cried with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude. The reality is, when you follow Jesus and you are a watcher of Jesus, other people are going to be impacted by you. And there's going to be a great multitude at the end of time that say yes to Jesus and no to the wine of Babylon, all that false doctrine stuff, because there are faithful watchers that follow the lamb wherever he goes. I've discovered something about this idea as I've been involved in ministry, I realize I'm not the one that changes hearts. My best eloquence, all it serves to do is divide and, and create animosity. In order for me to be a faithful watcher who tells people about Jesus and uh, about his soon return and his everlasting gospel, I have to be in Jesus' presence. It's in that time of prayer and submission to Jesus that I become effective in doing the ministry God's invited us to do. And it's not an insignificant thing. When I mention this idea of watchers actually tell others, Isaiah describes, sorry, Ezekiel, I think it is, describes this idea of the watchers on the wall, Ezekiel 36. And it says, if you um, ask a person to be a watcher and you put them on the wall, and they're looking for, they're supposed to be looking for enemies. If, if that person sees the enemy and flees without telling the, the, the city, then everybody who dies in that city will be on the hands, in the responsibility of that watcher who should have told the city about the judgment that was coming. This is a significant thing. And we should do it with 
every way possible. Like the early Adventists did. They printed it. As soon as they had the chance, they put it in, in the radio. As soon as they had the chance, they put it on TV, right? Uh, they, they talked about it to their neighbors. They invited people into their homes for Bible studies. They definitely talked about it. Um, but it is not the power of our words that change people's lives. It is the power of our surrendered lives, the Holy Spirit working through us. And that happens when we spend time with Jesus in prayer. When we say sincerely with all our desire, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we begin this new year, um, we have an opportunity, an opportunity to surrender to God's plan. We live in the time of the end, and it's definitely legitimate. We have a work to do. We can't be negligent. But that work begins and continues at the feet of Jesus. In all our busyness, for all our eloquent words that we can figure out, we will fail to take the gospel to the world. But in our surrender and in our humility, the Holy Spirit can work through us in power to God's glory. Will you join me in that prayer? Lord, your will be done on earth, in this part of the earth, just like it is in heaven. Will you join me this year in praying for God, for that intimacy with God, that, that we can follow the Lamb wherever He goes? And I just want to say, He is a good friend to follow. Let's stand together, and we're going to sing a song.